Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Last week we described war as a means of creating meaning and truth for the world. Jesus is described as defeating the principalities and powers. He's the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. He's the one who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility and violence. And here in John, as we read the triumphal entry, two things are occurring. He is casting out the prince of this world. And he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. These things occur simultaneously. That is that John tells us that by his lifting up, his crucifixion, that Satan will be cast out, all people will be drawn unto him. And it's this conjunction of events that I want to address. How will his death cast out the ruler of this world and how will it draw all people unto himself? And of course it only makes sense if we recognize that sin, evil, death, and the devil They have a grip on us because of our orientation in sin to death. And it's the opposite of what Jesus is doing in the triumphal entry, riding into Jerusalem, into the jaws of death, which is going to draw the world after him in a twofold sense, which first brings about his death. You know, the world is chasing after him. And we have to recognize that those killing him are doing what people would always do to save themselves. And what he is doing is exposing how this murderous grip of the devil is enslaving them by reversing nationalism, by reversing this self-salvation system, this death-denying system. And by entering Jerusalem, entering into death, Jesus is defeating what has the world in its grip, and he's establishing peace. And so as we read the triumphal entry, there is this reversal of a kind of myth-making that I talked about last week. Let's read John 12, 12 to 16. The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, And went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. And so the sequence begins in chapter 11. He's at the house of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And this, of course, is more than Jesus dealing with his friend, merely life in spite of death. That is what he's doing for Lazarus He's going to make universally available through the cross. But not just simply life in spite of death, but a defeat of death. 
And we gather from the way that John immediately ties Bethany and Calvary together. You know, the disciples warned him, don't go to Bethany because they're planning to kill you. And we see right after this, oh indeed, with the resurrection of Lazarus, the, the leading Jews planned how they were going to kill Jesus. And so he tells us that the whole affair of Lazarus' resurrection is behind the Sanhedrin's decision to destroy Jesus. Resurrection power is the thing that they're going to try. They're going to try to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. In chapter 12, verse 9 to 11, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees. And this is the resulting conspiracy. And it's also the reason for the large crowd. The large crowd of Jews learned that he was there and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests then planned to put them both to death, it says. And the miracles connection, you know, it says that I'm going to Bethany for my glory, but of course, not so much in the sense that people will admire him and praise him, but in the sense that it will lead to his death. Because, strangely enough, it's on the cross that the glory of God is revealed. And the universal implications of the raising of Lazarus, of course, remain incomplete. But we can view them in light of the Lord's entry into Jerusalem. Now we see what he was talking about. It's easy to see that Jesus rejects and reverses the crowd's nationalistic interpretation. Now what did you come out to see exactly? They wanted to see this miracle worker. They're thinking of a messianic kind of king. And of course, Jesus reverses that coming on a donkey. And what Jesus did for Lazarus signifies not merely life instead of death, extended to one person, but life because of death, extended to all people. And near the end of the chapter, this theme reappears in the words of Caiaphas, who doesn't know what he's saying. Verse 47 to 50 of chapter 11, the chief priests convened a council and they saying, what are we going to do? The whole world is chasing after this man. If we go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans are going to take our place and our nation away from us. There's their fear. Jesus is a troublemaker and he's going to cause the Romans to clamp down on us. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Don't you know that it is expedient for that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish? Now, I don't think Caiaphas understood what he's saying, and I don't think they understood even when he said it, what it meant. But there is a defeat of death and the establishment of peace and it is not one which calls upon death and war. You know, everybody wants to establish peace, but the way you establish peace is through war. And one which deploys death and war and in the self-destruction of sin. Just say, oh, those are the same thing. But we're always willing to sacrifice lives, maybe even give up our own in a cause that is the cause of sin. 
So this peace is genuine peace, the kind that truly unites human beings with God and with one another. And so it's a complete repudiation of sin. It's a complete repudiation of war. They're looking for a warrior king. And Jesus is signaling, this is a king of a very different kind. And so what John finds, I think, in the donkey incident, there is, first of all, the universalizing expectations of the crowd. I think this is what we're all looking for. You know, we all want a strong, messianic, warrior kind of king. And that's precisely what Jesus is not. John leaves it to the Pharisees to say, oh, look, the whole world has run after him. But the disciples will notice this later on. They'll pick up these prophecies. Jesus is passing into the jaws of death. They see this retrospectively. And they understand that the whole world chasing after him that's the gospel. They're giving us a proclamation of the universality of the gospel in a wider sense than they understood. This is really the plot of the book of John. This is the story. It just keeps repeating itself that Jesus' identity is either recognized or it's failed to be recognized. Will Nicodemus recognize it? Well, not really. Will the Samaritan woman? Oh, she does. Or the man who's lame, will he receive eternal life? The story is repeated over and over, and of course here, oh, they all recognize him in a sense. It's the high point of the recognition of Jesus' kingly role. But it's also the low point for understanding what sort of king he is. And so what is new in chapter 12 in the Revelation is that the hour has come. The Greeks come and they asked after him. The Greeks were not sure what that is all about. You know, why didn't Jesus go talk to those Greeks? But Philip and Andrew say, well, the Greeks are now inquiring after you. And of course, the Greeks represent the Gentile world. Now, not only the Jewish world, but the Gentile world are asking after you. And Jesus says, now judgment is upon this world in 31 to 33. Now the ruler of this world will be cast down. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate, John explains, the kind of death by which he was to die. He goes on to explain, there is a division. It's the casting out of Satan, but there's also a division among men. And so what the raising of Lazarus, the embalming at Bethany, the entry into Jerusalem, what all of this has been building toward, John brings to the surface. And it's the portion of John's theme. I think here we come to the rub. What is this story about? Here, the universal problem of people's orientation to death are exposed for all to see. John records here at this point. The Greeks come, verse 22, and look at verse what Jesus says in reply. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here is the passage that's repeated in all four Gospels. If you wanted a summation of the Gospel, here it is. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. If you're into life-saving systems, into salvation systems, then you lose your life. But if you relinquish life for my sake in the Gospels, you gain life, Jesus says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. So here is the universal problem of sin and salvation. I think in one of its purest expressions, John ties the universal reach of Jesus' ministry directly to his death. Why his death? Why, what's this attractive power of the cross? It's an odd thing to talk about this terrible instrument of shame and death and torture as being universally attractive because it addresses, I believe, the universal human problem. There's an, a pathological condition, an anthropological condition that we need delivered from and the cross addresses that problem. People are enslaved to the ruler of this world. They would save their life by their salvation systems that are actually devilish. And this salvation system of the world is going to kill Jesus. So we're really seeing two salvation systems, one against the other. And Jesus in his death is overcoming what people would do to save themselves. When I am lifted up, he says. And so the principal problem is simply that death and eternal life must be embraced together or not at all. The way the world would save itself is through doing what they do to Jesus, by putting him on a cross, by putting people on crosses. But Jesus' salvation demands that we take up a cross. The way the world would save itself is through death resistance. The way that Jesus saves is through death acceptance. This is resurrection faith. Satanic power exploits the orientation to death. And that is why Jesus' death defeats Satan. He's turning it around. He's walking in to the jaws of death. And we know this because the death that Jesus dies is what defeats the prince of this world. Destructive death resistance death resistance of war, the death resistance of violence. This is the way that the kingdom of Satan prospers. Jesus' kingdom exposes for us what power of the devil is. And this is a very different understanding than we usually get, that God is angry and hostile. No, the problem is that people are hostile. Nowhere does the Bible say Jesus died to appease divine hostility. Jesus died to appease human hostility. And what stands in the way of reunion is not God's case against sinners, but what they would do to God. We're seeing that, what they do to Jesus. And so the persistent hostility calls for reconciliation, not a divine emotion directed at rebellious people, but human hostility directed at the Creator, which they direct at Jesus. And these are the implications again and again in Scripture. Romans 5.10, Ephesians 2.16. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And you who were once estranged, Paul says in Colossians, 
hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. Where does the hostility lie? It's not with God, it's with man, it's with humans. All this, Paul says, has been done by God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, I mean that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And we implore you in Christ's name, be reconciled to God. Cease your hostility. This is a completely different understanding of reconciliation than the notion that it is God's problem Jesus is dealing with. So what's the problem? Look at what people do to God in Jesus. What they are doing to Jesus is a direct portrayal of the problem of sin. They would kill God if they could get their hands on him. Or maybe they worship a God, little g, called the devil, that would kill God. Most worship is directed toward the wrong God. That's the story, right? The one who rules this world is the one whom they're serving in killing Jesus. Most worship is directed to satisfying God who requires blood and sacrifice. But Jesus is reversing this universal hostility and exposing it for what it is. When Paul tells of God in Christ making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20, He's talking about the divisiveness in which thrones and dominions, principalities or authorities, he talks about, are involved in this hostility. When he attributes the resolution between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians to a reconciliation, the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility, what dividing wall? It's not the dividing wall that God has built. It's the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. He's well aware that the prince of the power of the air, the law of commandments and ordinances, all of these are involved then in the powers that are overcome. What are the powers? Very simply, the killing power that killed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? What killed Jesus? Well, whatever that is, that's what Jesus defeats, right? So is it religion? Yes. Is it politics? Yes. Is it the nation? Yes. Is it tradition? Yes. Is it law, public opinion, politics, philosophy? I think there are many elements that go together. That the world is arrayed against Christ and Christ is defeating those powers. What killed Jesus is this power. And biblical truth is the exposure of killing and the history of killing. And this is the way Jesus describes his work. Look at one last verse in Luke eleven fifty one, And Jesus is having an encounter here with the scribes and Pharisees. Christ's life and death, his teaching, lifts the veil of a kind of myth that the scribes and Pharisees are subject to. In the New Testament, mythos, you know, the lie, is exposed by the truth. The word truth is aletheia. And the word logos is the word that is countered. You know, there's the logos of man, and then there's the capital L, logos of God. Aletheia comes from the root letho, which is the verb to forget. The prefix is a. So 
the idea of a negation of forgetting. The literal meaning of the word, stop forgetting. That's your problem. And it is the opposite of myth. And it is the exposure through the logos of Christ of what we would hide, of what we would forget. The victims of myth and murder. His was a murder carried out by the state in which it was presumed his death was necessary to save the nation. But at a very basic level, his death exposes what is always obscured. He says in this passage, you build the tomb of the prophets, and by building their tomb, you participate in the death of the prophets. It's an odd saying. That is that whether it's a sacrifice to the gods, a sacrifice to war, a personal killing, the religion, the justifications of war, it remains hidden. And so prior to the advent of Christianity, what these people are doing to the prophets is what religious myth, what politics always does, scapegoating and then sacralizing the victim. They like prophets, dead prophets. Jesus says, well, you're right now, you're, you're going to plot to kill me. And they say, we are not. And then a few verses later, they say, let's kill it. They like prophets, dead prophets. And so what they've done to the prophets, they'll do to Jesus. And in the modern period, maybe the nation state has had more sacrifice than the history of sacrifice in the world. But Christ, I believe, lifts the veil on all human killing. To memorialize the dead, Jesus says, runs the risk of hiding the killing. Look at verse 47 and 48 in chapter 11. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. Tomb building, memorializing the dead, whether those prophets killed by the Jews, those sacrificed to the God, those killed in war, this can cover over the reality and the futility of killing. In Jesus' description, those who build the tombs shared in the guilt of those who do the killing. Because this memorializing obscures the reality. Their death was a futility. Jesus sees himself as the exposure of the reality. He says in verse 50, of the blood shed since the foundation of the world. Why did Jesus come? To expose the history of killing. Blood guilt, he says, will now be charged to this generation. I guess to every generation after the generation of Jesus, because the reality of killing is now demythologized. It's unforgotten. It's disentombed. We should be disenchanted with the myth of the nation state, of saving the nation or saving the self that killed Jesus. I'll close with just one illustration. I don't know if you all remember who Whitaker Chambers was, but Chambers was a communist who gave up communism, but Gil Bailey talks about the name of his book is Violence Unveiled. And in the book, Chambers tells of a conversation he had with the daughter of a former German diplomat. And she was trying to explain why her father had become disillusioned with Stalin's regime. She was a little embarrassed that he had given up communism. 
She loved her father, and the irrationality of his defection, Chamberlain says, embarrassed her. Chamberlain writes, she said, he was immensely pro-Soviet. You will laugh at me, but you must not laugh at my father. And then one night in Moscow, he heard screams. That's all. Simply one night, he heard screams. Chambers remarked, she did not know at all that she had swept away the logic of the mind, the logic of history, the logic of politics, the myth of the 20th century, with five annihilating words. One night he heard screams. Christ has forever countered the logos, or the logic of the mind, the logic of history, the logic of politics, the myth that would hide the victims. Now we can hear the screams. The blood shed from the foundation of the world cries out, and the guilt is now laid at our feet. But with that guilt comes the possibility of hearing the healing words of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.